Let's pray together. Father, we are about to consider the glorious mission that you have left for your church. Impress this text on the hearts of your people by the power of your spirit to the glory of your Son. Help us to be hearers and doers of your word alike. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Our text this morning is Matthew 28, 18 to 20. Matthew 28, 18 to 20. We are approaching a mountain peak in all of the Bible that is glorious in its message and massive in its implication for all of our lives, brothers and sisters. The Great Commission is often chosen as a mission statement for churches or seminaries or even individual Christians. It's right that we view these words in the course of the Bible as particularly significant. They sit in a position of prominence here at the end of Matthew's gospel. And they also sit in a position of prominence as some of the last words that Christ himself spoke to his disciples. And they are also significant because they stand at, at something of a hinge point in the course of the whole Bible. Book one, the Old Testament has come to a close, and book two has begun with the coming of the Christ and the resurrection of the Messiah. The, the Old Covenant has now gloriously been fulfilled in Christ through his incarnation and his resurrection, and the New Covenant in Christ has begun. The ingathering of the nations, which was uh, gloriously foretold on numerous occasions throughout the course of the Old Testament is now being inaugurated by Christ here just prior to his ascension. Everything that happens for the entire rest of the New Testament is a fulfillment of the words of our text this morning. The book of Acts charts the disciples going out and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of the Christ who has come to save sinners and planting churches. And then in the epistles, we have a robust commitment on the part of the apostles to fulfill Jesus' command in the Great Commission to teach them to obey all that I have commanded you. And then in Revelations, we have this finale, this climax depicted. We're surrounding the throne and laying down and bowing in worship before the Lamb are some from every people, tribe, tongue, and nation. All of this, brothers and sisters, is a fulfillment of our text this morning. I think it will help us to rightly interpret our text and to appreciate something of, of the weight and the glory of it if we read it in the context of the whole Bible and of Matthew's gospel. So I'm going to read a series of texts now. Uh, that will include our text this morning. You do not need to turn to these other texts. You can stay in Matthew 28. We'll be getting there shortly. Genesis 12, 2 through 3. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great. This is God speaking to Abraham. So that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Psalm 67, 1 through 4. 
May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us that your way may be known in all the earth, your saving power among all the nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. Daniel 7, 13 to 14. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like the Son of Man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Matthew 9, now getting into Matthew's gospel. Verses 37 and 38, then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Pray, therefore, earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Then Matthew 16, 18, these, these famous words of Christ, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And now our text uh, this morning, Matthew 28, and I'm going to start in verse 16. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them, And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted or hesitated. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age." Acts 1.8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. In the Revelations 7, 9 through 10, after this I looked and behold a multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to the Lord our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Amen. Before we dive into the first main point of the sermon this morning, I want us to look at our text in Matthew 28, 18 to 20 and just do a quick drive-by exposition and divide up the text. So if you look at verse 18, we'll see Christ's authority. And then verses 19 through 20, we'll see Christ's command. And there's one imperative in the text, and that imperative is to make disciples. That imperative is then supported by three participles uh, that describe the work of making disciples. And those participles are going or go, baptizing, and teaching. And then in verse 20, we have Christ's promise. Note also in our verses the repeated use of the word all. All authority, all nations, all that I have commanded you, and I am with you. Literally, the the Greek says, all the days to the end of the age. 
The cosmic scope of Jesus' parting words to his disciples should drive this text home as one of the most significant texts in all of the Bible. I have three main points this morning uh, that come straight out of the text. The great king, the great commission, and the great comfort. The great king, the great commission, and the great comfort. First, let's look at the great king in verse 18. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. This is something of the ground and the foundation for the command that he's about to give. And the main idea here is that Christ who had voluntarily emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant and coming in the likeness of man, Philippians 2, has now been crowned by the Father with universal authority as the resurrected resurrected Messiah. The tomb is now empty and the throne is occupied. This is the fulfillment of Daniel 7, 13-14. Christ is the Son of Man who came before the Ancients of Days and who the Ancient of Days would give dominion and glory and an everlasting kingdom. The authority of Christ is actually a a significant theme to trace throughout the course of Matthew, and so I want to trace it just briefly here. So Matthew is tying up the theme here at the end of his gospel, which he actually introduced in verse 1 of the gospel. Matthew starts with the saying, the book of the genealogy or the book of the genesis of Jesus Christ, son of David, son of Abraham. So Matthew in the very first verse is linking Christ as the offspring of David and as the offspring of Abraham. This is the reason that I gave the first point, the title, the great king. Christ is the fulfillment of the messianic prophecy in 2 Samuel 7 that God would raise up from David's offspring one to whom he would establish his throne and his kingdom forever. At numerous points throughout the Gospel of Matthew, if you're reading it and paying attention, you'll, you'll hear a number of people confess and cry out and identify Jesus as the son of David. The authority of Christ is traced throughout the Gospel in more ways, though. Uh, Matthew 7, 29, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, this glorious discourse from the Lord, teaching his disciples about what being a follower of Christ looks like. Christ gets to the end of this teaching, and Matthew documents that the crowds were astonished, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. In Matthew 8 and 9, in a narrative portion, uh, Matthew documents the authority of Christ over diseases, over the natural world through uh, calming a storm, and his authority to forgive sins specifically in Matthew 9, 6. In Matthew 10, uh, this famous uh, commissioning passage for the disciples, Jesus sends out the 12 disciples on mission to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, and he gives them delegated authority to cast out demons and to heal diseases. In Matthew eleven twenty seven, Jesus says, All things have been handed over to me by my Father. He has been given authority by the Father. Matthew 17, Jesus' divine authority and glory is prefigured at the Mount of Transfiguration before Peter, James, and John. In Matthew 21, when Jesus enters Jerusalem, 
The issue at hand with the religious leaders is their questioning of the authority of Christ. They say, by, whom's, by whose authority do you do these things? In Matthew 24 and 25 on the Mount of Olives, the Lord prepares his disciples for his immediate departure and his future return. He depicts himself as returning on the clouds with great power and glory before sitting on his throne as the king who will judge all the nations, the text says. And then in Matthew 27, in Pilate's headquarters, the king of glory is mockingly given the props of kingship. He has a robe put on him. He has a crown of thorns pressed down on his head. They put a reed in his hand to depict a scepter. And he's given the title, the King of the Jews, mockingly. And then fast forward just a short time. In a few hours, Jesus is hanging on the cross. And mockingly, the Jewish religious leaders look up at him and cry out, if he is the king of Israel, let him come down from the cross and we will believe in him. And now, finally, wonderfully, in Matthew 28, Jesus has risen from the dead and has been endowed with all authority in heaven and on earth. So throughout the Gospel of Matthew, we see Jesus' authority repeatedly manifested and then mocked and now finally magnified here at the end. Now I want to ask the question, what does the authority of Christ mean for us? What does the authority of Christ mean for us? Brothers and sisters, the authority of Christ is our warrant for going out and making disciples. The king who possesses all authority in heaven and on earth is the one who has given us our marching orders. This is not my business or your business. This is Christ's business. And he has enlisted all of his disciples to be active in this business. What gives us the right to clandestinely cross the borders of closed countries that have anti-proselytizing laws and to speak the truth of who Christ is? It's the fact that Christ is king and his kingship trumps that of all world leaders and powers. More close to home, what gives you the right, brother, sister, to cross the street and talk to your neighbor or cross the office and talk to your coworker about the eternal state of their soul. The wonderful, wonderful reality is that Christ is your king and their king, and he has enlisted us as his followers, as ambassadors, to proclaim the glory of his name. His supreme authority is our warrant for making disciples. Second, the authority of Christ is our confidence. It's our warrant, and then it's our confidence for making disciples. What guarantees the success of such an impossible, massive mission? Especially in light of how weak and frail we are all very conscious that we are. This is too great, this is too grand for us. The Great Commission is beyond any one of us. What would ever convince us that we'll be successful in this? It's the authority of Christ. It's not our gifting or ability, but the power of Christ the King accomplishing his mission, his purpose for the glory of his own name. The Great Commission 
brother, sister, will succeed in spite of us, in spite of our weaknesses and our failings, because Christ will have the prize for whom he died, an inheritance of nations. So that's the great king. Second, let's look at the great commission, and this will be by far our longest point. The great commission found in 19, verses 19 and 20. The text says, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. First question, who is the Great Commission given to? So so if we're going to be about the business of following Christ's commands, we need to know who we're supposed to go to if we're going to carry out the Great Commission. And if you want some mid-sermon application to grab hold of by the horns, pay close attention to the answer to this question. It will have massive relevance for all of us individually. The Great Commission is intended for the church corporately, which includes you individually, which means that in some very real way, your life should be involved in the work of making disciples. And the Great Commission is given to the church corporately, which includes all of us individually, which means we must be active and engaged in this mission. Now, why would we say, what gives me the right to say that the Great Commission is given to the church corporately, as opposed to maybe a few other options, say the 11 original apostles, or a few missionary types in all ages, but not the rest of us, or, there's a little bit of nuance here, to everyone individually, not corporately. Well, Jesus' promise in verse 20 indicates that this mission will take to the end of the age. And so it will transcend the lifetime of the apostles and cannot possibly be referring to them alone. The text also does not limit itself to a few missionary-type people. It's just not in the text. In fact, the universal scope of the commission and the promise would seem to indicate on its face that this mission is for all disciples, all followers of Christ in all ages. And then finally, and again, there's, there's some significant nuance, important nuance here. The Great Commission is so massive and comprehensive a command that it cannot be intended for every believer individually, that is, in isolation. You are not called to and cannot possibly fulfill the Great Commission in its entirety on your own. It would crush any one of us. It is beyond any one of us. Jesus gave the Great Commission to the community of disciples, to the church throughout all the ages. And the church is Christ's body and bride for whom he died and is made up of many members with many different gifts that are all separately supposed to be used together for the fulfilling of this one mission to make disciples. Friends, the church is the means, the method, and the goal of the Great Commission. The Great Commission is a corporate mission. 
It's not an individualistic mission. It is given to the corporate community of disciples to carry out by planting new corporate communities of disciples, all within the eschatological goal of Revelation 7, where there will be this massive worship gathering of the church universal surrounding the throne, worshiping the Lamb. This is the outcome of the Great Commission. Jesus said, I want to draw a link here between some words that Jesus said in Matthew 16, 18, and in our text. In Matthew 16, Jesus said, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. We should see in the Great Commission, Jesus following through on his words and fulfilling his promise that he will build his church. How is he building his church? He's doing it through the work of the Great Commission carried out by his disciples. This is why we believe the Great Commission is supremely about planting and establishing healthy churches. It is a corporate mission. Ephesians 3 tells us that it is in the church that the manifold wisdom of God is being displayed to rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. There's something cosmic going on here. Christ is doing something more than just saving individual sinners. He's building his church. And it's all building up to this last day where we will surround him around the throne. So that is who the Great Commission is given to. Second question, what is the actual command from Christ? What is the actual command from Christ? The single imperative in the text is to make disciples. And that imperative is modified by three different participles or verbal adjectives that are used uh, to describe the work of making disciples. And those, uh, those supporting verbs are going, baptizing, and teaching. Most of your translations probably have the first as go, which is a fine way to translate it. Kids, just to give you an example of how the language works here, uh, imagine, fast forward an hour in your life, and you're sitting uh, around the lunch table today, and your mom looks at you, and says, eat your food, chewing and swallowing all of it. What's the command? Eat, right? And how are you supposed to go out about the eating? What describes the eating? The chewing and the swallowing of all of it. Well, the language is working similarly here. These three participles, going, baptizing, and teaching, are all complementing the main verb, the main command here, which is to make disciples. We'll talk about each of, these, uh, each of these participles in just a minute, but first I want to note that Jesus didn't say simply, make converts. He said, make disciples. Emmanuel Church, I want you to appreciate that this is a much higher calling than simply evangelism and seeing people profess faith. Discipleship is all of life. It's being a lifelong follower of Christ committed to learning and obeying all of Christ's commands. Discipleship only begins at conversion. It does not stop there. And I want us to appreciate that we are aborting on the Great Commission. 
If we stop short at only evangelism and not discipleship and helping people follow Christ for all of life until they see him face to face. Christ is getting glory for himself in 10,000 ways. One of the most glorious ways is that glorious transfer of people from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of his beloved son. He is getting massive glory by saving people from hell. But he's doing more than that, and we need to recognize and appreciate and value that Christ is getting glory for himself by his followers being discipled and growing in obedience to all that he has commanded us. All right, let's look at the next question. Who are we to make disciples of? Who does the text say we are to make disciples of? We cannot fulfill the Great Commission if we don't know who we're supposed to go to. So who are we supposed to make disciples of? Is it just simply talking about crossing uh, cultural boundaries and reaching the Kurdish in northern Iraq? Or is it just reaching the Thai in Bangkok? Or is it reaching those in the Far East? Or Indians with our brother in northern India? Or does it include a church plant in post-Christian Boston with our partner Dave Como? Or in metro Atlanta with our brother Zach Deprima, who's gone out from us? Or does it include talking to your lost friend who you know is far from Christ about the gospel? Or mothers, and this is not just convenient because it's Mother's Day, this is true. Does it include discipling your children at home? Who are we supposed to be going to? I think the answer is yes to all of those options. The text says, make disciples of all the nations, pantata ethne. The word ethne is used 161 times in the New Testament and is most often translated as Gentiles and then second most often translated as nations. Not necessarily speaking of geopolitical nation states, although sometimes referring to that, but sometimes to groups of people. The term has been primarily understood in two ways. To refer to the Gentiles exclusively, that is the Gentiles, i.e. all the non-Jews in the world. Or the second way that it's been primarily understood is to refer to all people without distinction, which would include the Israelites. I think there are multiple and good reasons for choosing the second option. Uh, that what is referred to by go make disciples of all the nations, pantata ethne, it's referring to all peoples comprehensively without distinction rather than to Gentiles exclusively. Although, there's a little nuance, I do believe that in the flow of Matthew's gospel, and at this point in redemptive history, that there is something of an accent or an emphasis on the making disciples of the non-Jews in addition to the Jews. So this work was largely neglected by the Jews in the Old Covenant. 
Coming up to Sinai, even before the giving of the law, the Lord had identified that they were to be a kingdom of priests to the world. They were to have an outward focus, but too much of Israel's life turned inward. And here, at the turning and the closing of book one and the opening of book two, the close of the old covenant and the beginning of the new covenant, we are seeing this renewed emphasis on the gospel going to the whole world in addition to the Jews. The universal language in the section would seem to include the Jews. Uh, Paul, Romans 1, 16, 17, I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. He's not excluding the Jews, neither should we. Also from verse one of his gospel, Matthew has linked Christ as a fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. And here at the end of his gospel, he's not now suddenly choosing to jettison the Jews in this mission, but is rather emphasizing something of the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. That in Abraham's offspring, the Messiah, all the families of the earth would be blessed. The emphasis here, again, is on the universal expansiveness of the mission, not on specific demographics of all who would fall underneath this umbrella. Fourth question, now under our second main point, fourth question, what can we learn from the three participles that describe how we go about making disciples? What can we learn from the three participles going, baptizing, and teaching? Well, first, rocket science here, making disciples requires going. It's an unavoidable reality, both textually and logically. It's entirely appropriate, I think, to translate that participle, which usually get morphed into the ing ending, as go, almost like an imperative. I think it's, it's entirely reasonable and appropriate for each of these participles to carry something of the imperatival force of the command to make disciples. The simple fact is that the Great Commission, brothers and sisters, cannot be fulfilled without us going and engaging people personally with the gospel and speaking the gospel to them in love. God may be calling some of you to go across nations to unreached people and to reach them with the gospel. I pray that he will grip some of you, uh, that he would call some of you to be willing to lay down your life, to leave the comfort of your position here and to go to a place that has had little or no gospel light and to be like Paul and be willing to pour yourself out as a drink offering for the service of their eternal souls. I pray that God would raise up from our own midst some to go across oceans. Or he may be calling you to go across the street to your neighbor There are people who are far from God but very close to us. We should be aware of them. We should be quick. We should have the impulse to be ready to go to them with the gospel. Going is meant to be a way of life. It's one way we could view the the participle. It's, It's as we go, we could translate it. As you go, make disciples. This is a way of life for us, making disciples. That is something that is essential to the Christian faith. Second, making disciples requires baptizing. 
Making disciples require baptizing. Here Jesus sets the standard that his disciples are expected to publicly profess their faith and allegiance to him in the waters of baptism. Baptism is meant to depict their union with Christ and their decisive break and death to their old way of life. This would seem uh, to wreck any idea of the insider movement. You can be a Christian but still worship in the mosque as well. No, this is a decisive break that is evidenced through taking the waters of baptism. And notice that they are to be baptized in the name, singular, of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Three persons, one God. Uh, the idea of Trinitarian monotheism would have been absolutely countercultural and offensive in the first century Greco-Roman world, as it would be on its face to most religions today as well. Matthew could not shout in bolder terms here at the end of his gospel that Jesus is God and that being his followers requires a decisive break from their former way of life and they must identify with him. Third, making disciples requires teaching. And of the three, going, baptizing, and teaching, we're going to spend the most time here. This is one aspect of the Great Commission that, that we don't talk about enough. I can't count the number of sermons that I've heard on the Great Commission. And almost every one of them, 98% of the time, is spent on talking about evangelism and reaching unreached people groups which we are for evangelism and reaching unreached people groups to the glory of God. But nine out of ten of them barely even mention Jesus' command here. Teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. The Great Commission only begins with evangelism. We are aborting on our mission and displaying that we in fact have quite a low view of the Great Commission, if we are not following through on Jesus' words to teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. Jesus cares far more about merely saving you from hell. This is good news. Jesus is saving you to the uttermost, the author of Hebrews tells us. He wants to also conform you to his image, to the praise of his glory, Romans 8, 29. He wants you to attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature, of the fullness of Christ, Ephesians 4, 13. He wants his disciples to be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord fully pleasing to him, Colossians 1, 9 and 10. And then Ephesians 5 tells us that Christ is working to sanctify and cleanse his church so that he can present her to himself in splendor on the last day. Jesus is getting glory for himself not only by saving his rebellious image bearers, which is all of us who have been redeemed, 
He's not only getting glory for himself by saving us, but also by sanctifying his saints and building up his church. Notice here also, with Jesus' command here about teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, that we are to teach them to observe or keep or obey. That's the the language of that word. Teach them to observe, keep, or obey all that Christ commanded us. Brothers and sisters, in the way we go about making disciples and helping each other follow Christ, uh, seeing new disciples come in to the family, and then seeing family members make it safely to heaven uh, through all the storms and all the waves of this life of following after Christ, you have to help your family with that. And that requires teaching to the heart and to the life, not just to the head. Jesus wants our obedience. What, what did he close the Sermon on the Mount with? His last words, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And we shouldn't import our Pauline doctrine of justification by faith alone into that verse. The Sermon on the Mount is all about the ethics of the kingdom. It's all about how disciples are supposed to live. We know we'll fall short of that command, sure, but the point of the command is not for us to run looking for the imputed righteousness of Christ. No, the point of the command is to set this lofty and grand vision, this high standard, this bar of being perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That's a good and a godly ambition that every follower of Christ should have. And so, we should help one another follow Christ and set a high standard and do it in a way that actually affects the life, the way you talk, the way you think, the way you act, the way you make decisions. You see, the the scope of the Great Commission is exhaustive. It's expansive. Its tentacles touch down on every aspect of our lives. This is not just for missionaries crossing cultural boundaries. Jesus is giving broad, universal words to his disciples here. So Jesus is getting glory for himself by building up his church. Note also that we are to teach them to observe all that Christ commanded us. This is a massive call. All that Christ has commanded us. Not just to know it, but to live it. To let it transform our lives. And it's a call that takes time. Brother, sister, are you discouraged in your fight with sin this week? Are you in the same shoes that I am where you see the sin in your heart crop up and manifest time and time again? Don't be discouraged. This is the work of a lifetime. Christ wants us to daily recommit ourselves to follow him and to observe all that he has commanded us. And this is a call that on our part takes a robust and ongoing commitment to specific people or a specific group of people. So so to teach them to, I can't teach everyone to observe everything 
that Christ has commanded them. We have to have length of time and relationship and presence in people's lives to be able to fulfill this command. We cannot fulfill the Great Commission just by fixating on that first participle, go, or going. And if we incessantly go from one place to the next to the next, and we never stay put long enough to actually follow through on Christ's commands and teach people to observe all that he has commanded us, then we're falling short of Christ's words and what he has in mind here in the Great Commission. It's also important for us to understand that the command to teach them to observe all that I have commanded you includes the command to teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. Say that again. The command from Christ's mouth himself to teach them to observe all that I have commanded you includes the command to teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. And sadly, most missions organizations, if you're familiar, for the past several decades have made evangelism the holy grail of mission strategy and have underemphasized Christ's words here and his command that, that we are to teach them to observe all that Christ has commanded us. I've heard missionaries say, and I have read missiologists who say, after seeing a small group uh, from an unreached village hear the gospel and profess faith in Christ, well, they have the Spirit of God and the Word of God. And that's enough. I need to be going on to the next village that has never heard the gospel. And I trust that those words, when they're shared, are shared from the best of intentions, a true burden, a true desire to see the people who've never heard the gospel, who've never heard of a God who would enter into his own world, who would identify with his rebellious creatures and even substitute himself in their place and bear the wrath of God on them so that they don't have to bear it. I trust that it's from the best of intentions that they want to move on to that next people. But I would submit to you that this is dangerous and it's something we need to think carefully about. That missionary's feet, as he walks away from that group of new believers prematurely, is effectively trampling on Christ's words to teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. And this is also completely antithetical to the pattern of the apostles. Not only is it ignoring this part of the Great Commission to teach them to observe all that I have commanded you, but it's It just doesn't line up. It doesn't jive with the way that Paul and the other apostles worked. So Paul, who's the missionary par excellence, rarely left a town until he was forced out. And then, you know what he was doing? He was scheming for a way to get back there as quick as he could and try to build up the believers that were there. Paul and the other apostles also spent the vast majority of their ink teaching and building up existing believers. The entire New Testament after Acts is one giant evidence of the commitment of the apostles to teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. Brothers and sisters, let's elevate our view of the Great Commission by committing ourselves to fulfill all of it, not just a portion of it. We have the great king, the great commission. Now thirdly and finally, 
Much more briefly, the great comfort, verse 20, the second part of verse 20, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. First, notice the giver of the comfort. The one who tells you that he is with you is the resurrected God, Son of God, the Christ, the Messiah, the King of creation who has all authority in heaven and on earth. And Paul, in Romans 8.31, said then, if God be for us, who could be against us? This is the giver of the comfort. Second, notice the present nature of the comfort. The Greek literally says, I am with you all the days to the end of the age. The idea here is that Christ is with us, not in just some broad categorical sense. He's with us every day to the end of the age. And there is no expiration date on this command, on this promise. He does not take days off. He will be with his followers. He will, as we sang a few minutes ago, hold us fast. Brothers, sisters, take comfort in the knowledge that Christ will be with you all the days, every day, to the end of the age. Are you facing particular discouragement and trials? These are great words to go to. In all the promises of the Bible, this is one that just emerges to the top. I will be with you always, all the days to the end of the age. And third, Notice the confidence that's provided by this comfort. The Great Commission is a massive task. Who is sufficient for these things? We would surely fail if, we're, if it were not for the reality that Christ is with us. Our confidence in fulfilling the command to make disciples of all the nations is not in ourselves. It's not in innate gifting or ability or personality type or stage of life, or anything else. Our confidence is entirely in Christ, his presence with us. So why should we be confident in sending people to the hardest places in the world? Because Christ will be with them always to the end of the age. Why should we be confident in going across the street to our neighbors and inviting them over to dinner with the goal of engaging in some spiritually searching conversation because Christ will be with us always to the end of the age. What can possibly sustain the Stillies and the Gans and the Waltons and the Snyders and Nathan Harms and our partners in the Far East? This promise from the lips of Christ himself that I will be with you always to the end of the age. Christ will never leave them nor forsake them. Now in conclusion, and by way of application, I want to bring all this home to us as a church. What does this mean for Emmanuel Church? What does the Great Commission mean for us as a local gathering of Christ's followers? I'll share this by way of a number of statements. First, because evangelism is essential to fulfilling the Great Commission, 
Evangelism must be a priority for us as a church. Emmanuel, we must be active in fishing for the souls of men. If you were to ask me, Brad, you've been here since the beginning of the church. What would be an area you would think you'd like to see some growth in? This would probably be one of them. I'm not saying we're doing a bad job. I just want to see more of an evangelistic fervor in myself and in all of us. I think we need to grow here. We need to ask that God would help us to love his glory and the eternal good of the people around us enough to share the gospel with them. John Broda said that Christianity is essentially a missionary religion. It must be active at the extremities or it becomes chilled at the heart. Second, because the church is the means, the method, and the goal of the Great Commission, we will prioritize the planting of healthy churches both internationally and domestically. This is something that we, as a local gathering of Christ followers, are committed to. The church is the means, the method, and the goal. It's this Revelation's vision that we're heading for. It's the church surrounding the throne. It's the church in which the manifold wisdom of God is being displayed that we want to emphasize. And so we will be committed as a people to resourcing the planting of healthy churches both internationally and domestically. Third, because Christ gave the command to teach them to observe all that I have commanded you, we will, as a local church, place a high premium on every opportunity we have to be taught from the Scriptures. That is why we say, you want to know what we're about as a church? Then show up at 10.30 on Sunday morning. That's why we place such a high priority on the preaching of the Word and on the ministry of the Word in this church family. But it's not just in the preaching that we're fulfilling the Great Commission. The Great Commission is also being fulfilled in here in the 9.15 a.m. equip hour. Sunday school teachers, the Great Commission is being fulfilled as you labor midweek to prepare and then Sunday mornings endeavor to teach young hearts and young minds all that Christ has commanded him, trusting in him to give them the eyes of faith to see Christ and to follow him as the one who has all authority in heaven and on earth. You are doing the work of the Great Commission. Fourth, because Christ gave them the command to teach them all that I have commanded you, we will, in our missions efforts, place a high premium on missionaries staying to teach new converts and on pastoral training and development to resource national pastors. We will not abandon young Christians, whether in our fellowship here or in the works that we are involved in globally. Fifth, because Christ is the great builder of the church and has been given all authority to accomplish his mission, we will run from all forms of pragmatism and will trust the proclaimed word of God to do the work of God to his praise and glory. We will not measure success based upon numbers or measurable results, but by faithfulness to proclaiming 
Christ and Him crucified. Sixth, because Christ told His disciples to pray earnestly for the Lord of the harvest to send laborers into the harvest, we are committed to praying for our missions partners both corporately and privately. I hope that you make it a pattern. It's a great thing to do as a family. Make it a pattern to pray through each of our missions partners. They need your prayers. Seventh, because Christ told his disciples to pray earnestly for the Lord of the harvest to send laborers into the harvest, we pray that God will raise up some from our own midst. And the church family, we would be willing to send our best and to experience whatever hurt may come from that. Eighth, and finally, because the Great Commission is given not just to missionaries but to the church, corporate, we will all play our role by holding the rope for all of our partners. That means we will engage in meaningful partnership with each one of our partners. That means we will personally know them. That means we will actually pray for them. That means we will support them by every means available to us. We will visit them in every way that God gives us the opportunity to meaningfully engage with them. That is our heart and that is our ambition, God being our helper. When God gives them success, we will rejoice with those who rejoice. And when the soil is hard and they are laboring, sometimes for years with minimal results that wouldn't wow any Western church, we will stick with them. And when they are experiencing, because of their work, unusual hardship and pain, we will weep with those who weep. And we will come alongside them and we will lift their fainting arms and encourage them in the work. Brothers and sisters, the Great Commission is given to the church corporately which means you individually. May God give us grace and wisdom to think seriously about how we can play our role in helping to make disciples, both to see lost people come to faith and to see existing believers make it all the way to heaven. May God help us to think more often about this. We should think, I have a stake in your soul and your soul and your soul, and I want to see you do well. I want you to thrive. I want you to make it to heaven. And let's commit ourselves to help each other do that until the day where Christ returns and we see him face to face. Let's close with the words of Ephesians 3.21. To God be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Pray with me. God, to you be the glory. You are worthy of all glory. You are worthy of our lives. You want all of us for all of life. Lord, we know we are prone to wander. And if it were not for the fact that you had sovereignly decided that no one would snatch us out of your hand, and that you would lose none of them that were given to your son, Christ, we would tremble at the fear of losing our faith. 
yet we know that you will complete the work that you've started in us. And we pray that you would use us, uh, that you would help us like Paul to be willing to pour ourselves out as a drink offering on the sacrificial service of your faith. God, help us to be robustly, deeply invested in making disciples and in helping them reach heaven. We pray this in the name of your Son and for his glory in all things. Amen.